Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Sarah. And I'm Bree. And joining us today, we have special guest author Kit Hawthorne. Welcome to the podcast, ma'am. Tell us how you're doing and how your 2021 is going. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, so excited about y'all's podcast. Uh, 2021 is going pretty well here on the farm. We've got a lot of fruit trees put in. We're doing some home improvements. And uh, yeah, it's treated me pretty well. Let's get started with some icebreaker questions. One of your blog posts is dedicated to your canning pantry. Can you share with us how you got into this and share any advice or tips you have for anyone looking into canning their own food? Well, one of my grandmothers used to can, and I used to spend uh, weeks in the summer just staying with those grandparents, and she didn't teach me how to can, but I always saw her doing it, mm-hmm. and so I knew that was a thing that, that could be done, and it looked like fun, and uh, so I wasn't intimidated, I guess, by it, and I've always had a self-sufficiency streak. And so I liked the idea of preserving my own food and knowing the provenance of the food. And I uh, started in my early 20s, I started with jams, jellies, and preserves. Those are pretty easy and you only require a, uh, they only require a water bath canning mm-hmm. method, which is, which is pretty easy. A woman from my church actually came over to just walk me through. And uh, later, I knew that if I wanted to be serious, hardcore canner, I needed to get a pressure canner. And that was a little intimidating because there's pressure and steam and hot liquids and glass. Mm -hmm. But I followed the instructions. They're very clear. And I never had any serious mishaps. Uh, I've been doing about 10 years now. And I love putting up my chicken stock and and meaty things, Mm -hmm. you know, like soups and stews. The Ball Blue Book of Canning is an excellent resource. Just tells you everything that you need to know. Okay, I'm jotting that down because especially <laughs> I wanted to hear you talk about this because that is something I really want to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, I especially, I really want to start, I think, with broths. Like I was reading something recently about like how important it is to keep, to clean your gut. And I was not thinking yeah. that this was something important. And I read that bone broth is like really helpful with that and I was like well I need to learn how to can bone broth yeah (laughs) (laughs) have the idea how to make it (laughs) yeah that's that's one of my favorite things to can and I uh I let it simmer for about 24 hours uh after the first few hours take the meat off the bones you know and use it for something else and then put the bones back in there and after all that time the gristle dissolves it just dissolves right into the and all and you put a little vinegar in there and the minerals leach out of the bones so good so rich thank you for that title i've written that down (laughs) (laughs) what is one thing you find yourself nostalgic for well i am a gen xer Mm -hmm. which means i had an analog childhood and then kind of a techie early adulthood and on and I find myself nostalgic about about that analog childhood, uh, specifically how we used to read mm-hmm. everything because we didn't have anything else to do. Well, we might watch TV, but, you know, just yes. sitting around eating breakfast, reading cereal boxes, newspapers. Yes. 
<laughs> the TV guide, which I don't even know if they make that anymore. Uh, and I'd go over to somebody's house, take a book off their shelf and just finish it before going home. Yeah. Um, I don't know how how good a guest that made me, but I'd, I'd do it. And uh, I think I read a lot of things that I would not have read if I had other options that were more entertaining. But it was it was good for me to read those things. I got a very broad uh, knowledge base that way. Absolutely. Nowadays, it's just it's it's harder to commit to reading. I mean, I still do it, but there are so many things vying for our attention. I think we lose a lot of that random reading and also just the ability to fall into a reverie. We can do yeah. it, but we have to be so conscious about it. I love that you said that because that's something Sarah shares with me all the time. Like we're huge ebook readers. We love mm -hmm. audiobooks. Mm -hmm. And like she'll just message me like I'm reading a physical book and it feels so nostalgic yes. for some reason. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and I love my e-reader and I listen to a lot of audiobooks too. And I love that I can do that. But yeah, mm -hmm. there is something about the feel of a book in your hand, for sure. Bree and I talk all the time, too, about, you know, the fact that we would get so much more reading done if we just stayed off Instagram, if we just stayed oh, off yeah. Facebook, yeah. you know, and <laughs> it is, it's a huge distraction. Like, if I have downtime at work, the first thing I do is I put it, pick up my phone when it's like, yeah. the book is right there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just too easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is one of the best purchases you've treated yourself to this year? Well, one of our new neighbors uh, is he does like earth clearing, dirt work and tree work. And we hired him to come out and clear the land around this beautiful, old, huge post oak tree. And it had uh, all these viney things and cactus. And uh, there was an old toilet out there and like an old remains of an old car. We live on a farm. Uh, wow. that has been in the family for seven generations. And a lot of stuff ended up, <laughs> ended up in this particular portion of the farm. And, uh, and there were hackberry trees and mesquite trees. And he took all that out and just left this beautiful oak tree. And I can see it from my writing room. It's oh. so gorgeous. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and also on the, along the same lines, just today, I bought myself a ginkgo biloba tree. I bought it off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, they're so beautiful and they do really well in Texas. I bought it off of Tractor Supply and they're going to deliver it to the store. And my husband doesn't know that yet, but he's going to <laughs> have to clear an old hackberry stump out of the front yard so that it can go in there. And I'll be able to see that from the other window. Yeah. In room. Nice. yeah. It's like, babe, where'd that tree come from? Oh, that old yeah. tree? Oh, that's been there forever. <laughs> <laughs> Remember we talked about this? Yeah. <laughs> what was your first job? Well, funnily enough, it was in an independent bookstore. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah, I was in high school. It was called The Bookmark, and it was in Harlingen, Texas. And yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to uh, arrange physical books on shelves and, mm -hmm. that is and look that name. at all the, all the books that were out there. Yeah. If you came with a warning label, what would it say? It would say uh, that I was prone to going off on overly detailed rants. <laughs> about American history, Texas history, European history, Genghis Khan, literature, theology, and the finer points of grammar. <laughs>
So you're a history lover is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Nice. (laughs) We love romance origin stories. So can you share with us how you became a romance reader? Well, my mom always had Danielle Steele books in the house. I read all of those. And I think I got my first, it was a silhouette uh, when I was, I think Harlequin bought that, right? I, I think Correct. so. And yeah, okay. Uh, I got that around the time I was 12. I remember the hero's name was Rafe. And I don't remember anything. Or, well, I remember kind of the plot of it, but I don't remember the author's name or the book's name. But that kind of got me into it, I think. And I ended up reading a lot of just, again, it, I don't remember the author's name or the title. They were just books I would pick up in people's houses when I was visiting and read. Uh, It was a lot of these multi-generational historical Mm -hmm. romances, just really meaty stuff. Uh, And then I found Jane Austen and Mm -hmm. I mean, well, (laughs) it's just (laughs) action. You know, the story just leaps off the page. There's stuff Mm -hmm. happening and people saying and doing things and horrible old aunts just trying to make your, make people's lives miserable. And, (laughs) My husband and I, my husband loves watching uh, Jane Austen adaptations and he'll suggest it on his own to Mm. read. And then, yeah, it's funny because he loves uh, action adventure type movies too, you know, and he'll just watch those and just be, you know, he's not stressed out about the action or anything. But we watch Pride and Prejudice and, you know, Mrs. Bennett gets to talking and he just white knuckles it through that. He's just so stressed (laughs) that people are being so horrible to each other. (laughs) From what we've read online, it seems like you've always written and prioritized writing as much as possible. Can you chat a bit about your writing journey? Well, I, I wrote a lot as a kid. Uh, it was it was a time when Return of the Jedi came out when I was in seventh grade. So Star Wars was on everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of science fiction, a lot of fantasy. And I would enlist my friends and my little cousins to act out scenes for me. They were really very obliging to me. I, I really owe my little cousins a lot. I don't think I've thanked them enough for that, but that was very good of them. <laughs> and I wrote a lot in college, but that was, of course, academic, mm-hmm. mostly, you know, writing about Milton or Shakespeare. And uh, But good training, definitely, for clear thinking and expression. Uh, then I got married right out of college. We started having kids right away. So it was hard to carve out time, but I just always did. It was an important thing to me. And one of the things I really had to learn to do was I had to learn how things actually worked, like just practical things in life and geography and what jobs are like and what uh, just the nuts and bolts of life. Because I, I live in my head a lot, which authors generally do. But I mean, even the most speculative fiction has to be grounded in factual reality because... Otherwise, who cares? Mm -hmm. So uh, those years when my kids were small, and they were with me all the time because I homeschooled. We were just constantly together. And they're all very imaginative. My kids are all excellent writers. And just the way their minds worked and the stories we would read together, um, it was really fertile grounds for imagination. Yeah. So as someone that's really, really, really thinking of homeschooling, what made you Mm -hmm. want to go that route with your children? Well, I was an English major in college, and a lot of education majors were in my junior and senior level classes. And at least at my particular university at that time, I think it was seen as a soft option. Mm-hmm. And we were, we're taking 
like Milton and Shakespeare. And I'm, I'm excited, you know, and a lot of these people were just like mocking the material. Yeah. Uh, they didn't care about it at all. And I thought, gosh, these are the people that would be teaching my kids. And mm. I don't want that. Yeah. I wanted to just instill a passion in them for the things that I was passionate about and, and allow them some scope for the things that they would be passionate about. You went to school, you were doing English. At what mm-hmm. point in your life did you realize you wanted to pursue writing professionally? I was actually in fourth grade. I was talking to a PE teacher one day. He was this uh, dear older man. He was also an ordained minister. And somehow we were talking about writing books. And I said that that was something I'd like to do, but that it was probably really expensive to get them published. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Merrill said, no, that's that's a job. That's They pay you. You can do that for a living. <laughs> and I was like, really? Well, then that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I never departed from that, even when uh, for a while I considered being a professional musician and going that route in school. But still, that was always going to be in addition mm-hmm. to writing. And then I ended up majoring in in, mus- in uh, English instead of music. That's so neat. It's, it's interesting when you realize that that's actually a job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people get paid to do that. <laughs> yes, of course, for a great many years, I did not get paid to do it. I know, right? <laughs> I, then once you do, it, like, yeah, it's like, wow, somebody other than me cares about this being finished. It's a great feeling. <laughs> On your Getting the Call post on Harlequin's website, you write that you took a fresh look at the last short story you'd written, added layers of motivation, emotional baggage, and secrets. You didn't write that book with a particular publisher in mind, but when you read about Harlequin Heartwarming, it was the perfect fit. For anyone who has yet to read the Heartwarming line, how would you describe it to them? Yeah, it was uh, it was actually Sasha Summers who recommended mm-hmm. Heartwarming to me. I'm so grateful to her for that. Uh as far as the the heartwarming line, of course, there are no sex scenes, mm-hmm. and uh, so the stories focus instead on the sweetness of romance, the attraction of tension, uh, dialogue. Uh, these are heroes and heroines who have traditional values, but they're they're living modern lives, yeah. and um, because of the longer word count. 70,000 words, and because of the lack of sex scenes, that means there's a lot more room for relationships with friends, families, neighbors, co-workers, just a whole community of secondary characters that come up again and again and sometimes get their own love story later in the series. I think Heartwarming lends itself very well to to series mm-hmm. for that reason. Agreed. So can you tell, can you t- like talk about actually getting published? So did you just kind of submit the the book to different publishers and you had learned about the heartwarming line and you were like, maybe, like, can you just give us the details yeah. of how it happened? Mm-hmm. I finished it. I kind of took a year off from, from other pursuits. So I had been working on a historical for a long time, uh, a series, and then I just, I decided to put that on hold and I wanted to write something that, that I could sell. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just worked on this, this one story that was based on that last short story I wrote that didn't didn't get published because the magazines I was writing for tanked. So I, I was kind of withdrawn from a lot of other pursuits at that time. And then I finished it and kind of, you know, broke the surface of the water and looked around and said, uh, I asked on a writer's group that I belong to, 
anybody have any suggestions for where to submit a sweet romance of 70k? And you know, and Sasha said, sounds like be a good fit for Heartwarming. And Heartwarming was actually the only publisher that I submitted to. I think she, Sasha, suggested one other, but I ended up submitting just to Heartwarming. Hmm. Just put it in the little submittable form and then you know tried to forget about it (laughs) 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 until I heard back I mean your books are like the epitome of heartwarming so it's just crazy how that all works out so it is yeah (laughs) I was thinking of like when we were talking about nostalgia I've recently I've been in this big magazine kick lately and granted magazines are kind of expensive nowadays you had been like writing for magazines so can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about that like what were you writing were you just doing articles were you putting short stories in them like how was that working it was yeah it was it was short stories it was um that was I guess when we it was about 12 years ago that we moved from North Texas to Central Texas and that was something that I knew that if I basically followed the steps and wrote to the requirements of a certain audience that I could get published and I could get paid mm-hmm. <laughs> at last. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was that. And it was good training. I wrote for them for several years. And uh, there was one time my son was scheduled to get his wisdom teeth out and I got a check for a story like that same day. And it was just about the same amount. So oh, it was wow. nice to, <laughs> yeah, it, it, because I had to produce and it kept me on a rigorous schedule and mm-hmm. uh, I have a tendency to just think, well, I'll just think about it for a while, you know, when I get into a difficulty and then just kind of dither around and to get distracted with something else. It, it kept me very focused. And because of the shorter length, you know, I was finishing things all mm-hmm. the time. I remember when uh, there were, I read magazines a lot as a teenager. And back then they used to have, uh, the Teenage Girl magazines used to have fiction in them. I don't think they do anymore. But those those were some really good stories. I still, I remember those. I think about them sometimes. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's chat your Truly Texas series. Will you share with us where the inspiration for the series came from? Well, I live in a small rural town in central Texas. And uh, I just looked it up this evening. I was wondering what the population of that town is. And apparently in 2019, it was population 81. Wow. So <laughs> it's small. <laughs> and we are about five minutes away from another town with a population just under 6,000. Oh and yeah, and it has like 20 taco places, like taco <laughs> trucks, taco restaurants, Mr. Taco, which is a chain. And that's, that's, all to the good because we need, I mean, they, they stay in business and they are providing a valuable service. Um, so we moved here like 12 years ago to my husband's family farm. It's a heritage farm like La Escarpa mm-hmm. uh, that's been in continuous operation by the same family since I want to say the 1850s. Wow. My children, yeah, my children were the seventh generation to live here. Oh my gosh. That's yeah, awesome. That was that's really special. And mm-hmm. uh, we have so much culture in this area. It's so vibrant. We have uh, Mexican, German, Czech, so many different cultures here. And as a lot of kind of fusion of that. There's a donut place in a nearby town whose sign says tacos, colaches, espresso, and more. <laughs> and- <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And they have uh, Boudin 
or I don't know how that's pronounced, but it's it's like a, a Cajun sausage, boudin kolache. So it's a like a Cajun Czech fusion food. I love that. And there are a, town, a lot of towns around here with German names mm-hmm. and uh, just the architecture, the Spanish influence and the German influence. Uh, this is just, it's a really neat place. And we live close to where a lot of the important Texas history things happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's its such a fun place. And there are so many interesting people here, hardworking, rural, uh, or with ties to rural people. Mm-hmm. And I chose to set truly Texas in a fictitious county, like, like Craig Johnson did for his Longmire books. I thought, you know, that's a good idea. Just we have 254 real counties in Texas, so I figured, what's one more? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we don't have a Seguin County, but we should. So that was that was easily done, and it sounds plausible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, Seguin County is I never say exactly where it is, of course, because it's not really there. Mm-hmm. But it's in the vicinity of Bear, Hayes, Guadalupe. Comal counties. Uh, so within easy driving distance of real cities, New Braunfels, San Marcos, Austin, San Antonio. And there are so many fun things to do in those cities. And so I have them go to real restaurants and uh, real fun places to visit, uh, like the Bats in Austin and the uh, uh, well, I was thinking about some of the things in my upcoming book, but that's <laughs> that'll that'll have to wait. <laughs> that won't be out yet. But I just wanted to um, share our little portion of Texas with some readers. I had to laugh when you were saying about the name because I am working on a book, mm-hmm. and one of them is set in Texas, and I was trying to find like make up a town name. So uh-huh. I'm Googling like these town names with Texas and I'm like, everything is in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't find a good town name that wasn't already in use. Yeah. <laughs> it was almost impossible. <laughs> yeah, we have so many. There was, I used to live near a town called Ponder. I love that. <laughs> Ponder, Texas. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> The first book in the series is Hill Country Secret, the romance between Lauren Longwood and Alex Reyes, two people who believe they are complete opposites from one another, but who have way more similarities than they realize. Can you tell our listeners about their story? Well, so Lauren lives out of a van, and that's apparently a thing that a lot of people do now. They'll uh, convert an old school bus or like mm-hmm. in Lauren's case, a Ford Transit van. I love looking at their pictures on Instagram. Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it myself. I want my home to stay put, but it's neat to look at. And uh, so she travels the continent, works just a combination of transient jobs, but she has practical skills and she has traditional ideas about romance, but to someone like Alex, she just appears kind of flaky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when it turns out that uh, her new husband does not share those traditional ideas about romance, uh, and she's recovering from heartbreak, then she flees to her best friend's ranch, La Escarpa, which is about as permanent a place as you can find in uh in the United States, I mean, our our old places aren't. I mean, this isn't Europe, you know. But mm-hmm. <laughs> 1850—that's pretty old. <laughs> uh, and 
to be around good people who love her. And then there she uh, meets or re-meets Alex, who is her best friend's husband's brother, and who, as you said, appears uh, very different from her. He's Alex is tied to one place, mm-hmm. tied to the land, has no desire to roam, thinks that travel is overrated, because that's just going to another place that's mm-hmm. not any better than the place that you are and spending money on it. Um, and he's just, Alex is just trying to hold on like a lot of rural folks today. Uh, and he's obsessed with his Texas history. Mm-hmm. But Alex and Lauren are both hardworking, loyal individuals, and they've both been hurt by flaky people. They kind of bond over that. Yeah. Were you already kind of fascinated by the van life before you started writing the story and came up with Lauren? Or, I mean, did the idea for Alex and his love of where he is and where he comes from and that want, like that desire to keep roots where they are, Mm -hmm. did you come up with him first? And then it's like, okay, what would conflict with the the character that he is? And that's how you you drafted Lauren? Like, how did did that work out? Yeah, that, that's exactly how it was. Alex came first. And in the original short story that this started out as, uh, there wasn't any van life going on. So yeah, it's just like you said, I, I thought, what would, what would contrast with that and uh, the van life? Most of what I see online, because I love following van lifers on YouTube, it usually is women. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, all these comments of like, this is so dangerous. But I just love that women are throwing caution to the wind and are like, I Mm -hmm. want to drive across the United States five times, you know, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's true. It mostly is. It mostly is women. I hadn't really thought of that before, but you're right. So the second book is Coming Home to Texas, which is the second chance romance between Dahlia and Tony. And he's hired to do home renovations on her mother's recently damaged Texas ranch. And we love renovation stories in romance novels. Mm -hmm. I just think that the fixing up of something, like taking it and making it beautiful again while Mm -hmm. a romance is happening, I just think they lend themselves so well to each other. So we're always like, oh my God, this is a renovation. (laughs) Dahlia and Tony came to you and where the renovation idea came from. Yes. Well, Dahlia and Tony were, of course, they were, they were present in in book one in Hill Country Secret and there they were just Lauren's friends mm-hmm. and uh, Dahlia was this no nonsense uh, driven sort of disciplined person and then Tony was just so fun loving and uh, the storm actually was based on a couple of real storms in the area one of them uh, my sister's house actually had its metal roof peeled back just like just like in the book and that was. Uh, did a lot of damage. And then another story that I just read about, I didn't experience it personally, but uh, it hit, it was a, this freak late summer storm that hit the San Antonio area, did a lot of damage. And, but the community just came together so well, um, helping each other after that storm. And uh, so that would, of course, necessitate a lot of work on the house. And I wanted to explore how La Escarpa would evolve from being a simple ranch house built in the 1830s. I actually based it on uh, a a blueprint that I found of Juan Seguin's old house. And it was just a very simple rectangle. And uh, 
I wanted to explore how a house like that would evolve into a modern family home. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Texan's Secret Son is the third book and is a second chance secret baby romance between Marcos and Nina. The secret baby trope can be really difficult to pull off, but we think you nailed it. When you first began writing the book, did you already have Logan's character in mind? And can you chat about writing the secret baby trope? Well, I think the challenge, the challenge in my mind with that trope is how can it be a secret? Like, how can you not know? Can you not count nine months? So uh, (laughs) this is just simple arithmetic, you know. So that's what I wanted to address and make plausible. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Marcus is not the most intuitive and he's impulsive. So, you know, after they after they split up, he just didn't see her for Mm -hmm. uh, for eight years. And of course, Nina's fake marriage that she she pretends to be married so that she won't have to deal with um, clients at the uh, Veterans Center coming on to her. Mm-hmm. And this is a real thing that several young women that I know personally have done. They will acquire a wedding ring and just have a fake husband. Uh, I mean, it's kind of sad that that's mm-hmm. necessary, but I understand why they do that. And so Marcus just doesn't imagine that that she would lie to him. He just thinks, well, there's a husband, you know, and uh, he doesn't notice how old Logan is, or he's really not curious because it's not his kid. Why should he care? Yeah. And <laughs> uh, and also he he thinks that if if it was his kid, she would have told him. The the moment where he finds out, I love uh-huh. how you did that. Oh, I, I don't want to spoil it, but I love how you did that. <laughs> oh, thank you. And I wanted, uh, as far as Logan's character, I I wanted to write a kid that was not not too precious and not too cute. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Logan is just a very dry, factual kid, but still a child, but just just a very practical uh, person, very centered on his physical environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's like Marcus in that way, but not so much physically. Yeah. And family resemblance is so interesting that way because you see people that like they look like one parent uh, in the face but then the way they stand, their posture mm-hmm. is like the other parent. And like my my two daughters don't really look a lot like each other. But when when they're sleeping or when they're laughing, then I think they do. They look like sisters. Yeah. So it can be very hard to, to pin down. Yeah. Family resemblance is a very, very fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. So one of the aspects of the story we really loved was how you explored Marcos's transition from military life. Um, Can you talk about why this was important for you to explore and include in the story and any research you put into writing um, about his transition? Well, my son is a veteran. And uh, as far as the research, he introduced me to a a sergeant of his that he had a great deal of respect for, um, uh, Sergeant Sergeant Zuniga, who was very helpful about life in Afghanistan and deployment. There was uh, another was a man in, in town that my husband knew who was very helpful, answered a lot of questions for me. My brother was a Marine staff sergeant, and he's still a pretty tough guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's 10 years older than I am. And I remember when he went away and I remember when he came back and that just made a huge impression on me. My my dad, my father's-in-law, my uncle Gary, my cousin Tony, uh, some other cousins, um, and my grand 
all veterans, just a lot of uh, military service in my family. My grandfather is a World War II veteran and still living. Wow. Yeah. It's I it was it's interesting to me the adjustments that veterans have to make coming back to the civilian world and not not so much the obvious things. Uh I mean if someone has a permanent injury or serious PTSD then obviously that's going to make that transition difficult, but there are a lot of smaller uh impediments mm-hmm. to reintegrating into life and a lot of the things that happened to Marcus in the book, those were directly lifted from from my son's experience. And I think there are a lot of sacrifices that veterans make as far as uh, just just daily life, things that are that are not obvious to onlookers. Uh, a lot of people really don't really don't understand. It can be hard for them in the job market because they've been trained to be very uh, taciturn, mm-hmm. not elaborate. I mean, that's valuable in a military setting, but it can make you seem cold when you're on a job interview. And uh, so there's there's a lot for them to a lot for them to learn when they get home. And I respect them for doing it. Yeah. With Marcos, I loved how he just felt like really awkward, like he just didn't know how to be. And that was just so spot on. Like, I remember like when I would just go home on leave and you're like so excited Mm -hmm. to be around your family. But then yeah. it's like, wow, like life really goes on when I'm not here. And like, yeah. I don't really know how to be around these people, you know? Yeah. And yeah. that's how Marcos, it, it just, that's really how he felt in my heart oh. without them. And I did love, you talked about Nina with like the ring. And <laughs> she says something in the book, like he asks her like, well, why do you do that? And she's like, you know, a lot of these guys are really lonely and, you know, we're listening to them and then they take that the wrong way. So yeah, yeah, it was really, I just, I loved that dynamic between them. Thank you. So let's get into some writing questions. Are you an early bird or a night owl? What time of day do you feel most productive while writing? Definitely early. I like to get up before the rest of the family, um, get my chores knocked out. I I'm very much a creature of habit, mm-hmm. so I can just do all this stuff on automatic pilot and then sit down and start writing. Are you a plotter or a pantser? I definitely plot. <laughs> uh, I like using note cards, and uh, I, I do a lot of pre-writing, I guess, uh, before before actually opening up a document, just ta- writing like little individual scenes or scraps of dialogue. But I like to put these on note cards because they're disposable and you can mm-hmm. arrange them and rearrange them and you can throw them away if they don't, <laughs> if they turn out not to fit. If it's a project you're, you're already working on, do you read the previous day's work before beginning? I often do. I know a lot of people say that you shouldn't, but I, I end up doing it a lot and it seems to work for me. Are there any necessities you need around you while writing? Well, I like to have plenty of Darjeeling tea made with (laughs) distilled water because it's so much better with distilled water just releases the aroma of the tea so well. Uh, I actually have a little electric kettle in my writing room, so I don't even have to go to the kitchen. I just <laughs> to go, keep my little jug of water in there and, and a whole jar of, of loose leaf tea. Mm-hmm. Um, so plenty of tea, usually uh, one or more dogs, uh, and I like, I definitely like an orderly and quiet environment. It's hard for me to do good work when things are disorderly, but of course life happens and sometimes 
there's just no help for it. But as much as I can, I, I try to um, you know, I tidy up my study at the end of the day if I've gotten mm-hmm. stuff out for uh, for research and just have a nice, clean, fresh start in the morning. Do you set daily writing goals? And if you do, do you have any advice for anyone else? I often do. And then I may or may not meet them. It seems <laughs> like there's, I think I heard once that pretty much anything you try to do will take about three times longer than you think it should. And this seems to be true in a lot of areas of life. Uh, so especially if a deadline is coming up soon, then, you know, I really have to put the pedal to the metal and mm-hmm. uh, get it done. But yeah, I think a lot of people say, you know, write every day, write a certain number of words every day. And I might do that when I'm actually in a project. But then again, I mean, I get disabling migraines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I'm just not going to write every day. That's mm-hmm. just, it's not happening. And if I tried, that would just be a very negative thing for me. So yeah, I would say, listen to what other people say, but find out what works for you. Yeah. Um, are there any, are there specific programs that you use for your writing? Do you use Word or Scrivener? I just, I use Word. I, I tried Scrivener. I think it's probably wonderful, but I just, at that time, I did not have time to learn. And I could see <laughs> there was a steep learning, learning curve yeah. there. And I just, I didn't have the time. So, and I'm a very analog person anyway. I like uh, physical notebooks for my, mm-hmm. for my story uh, Bible. And I like note cards and pictures and I like to write things out longhand so yeah I just need the basics <laughs> I feel like that goes back to your your nostalgia of like reading right? cereal boxes and like yeah. physically the <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> yes <laughs> I like it I love it do you edit as you go I do I uh people say that that you shouldn't you should just knock out that first draft but it distracts me to know that there's something in an earlier chapter that doesn't fit with something I'm doing now. And yeah, I usually go back and mm-hmm. and fix it. Plus anymore, I'm trying to get my first three chapters polished and ready to send to my editor. So it's kind of just nature of the beast anymore. Yeah. You find yourself stumped in the middle of a scene. Who do you call or what do you do? Well, a lot of times I'll start out by changing my venue. Like I said, I'm a, a creature of habit and I like my my familiar places, but sometimes we can get a little hidebound. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, for me, actually, changing venue means I move from my desk to my armchair. <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like a big change. And uh, if I've been if I've been on the computer a lot, working on a scene that's giving me trouble, I'll print out those pages and just sit down with my little lap desk and a pencil. Sometimes I'll use highlighters and color code the different kinds of things and figure out where they need to be. Or I'll just scribble in the margins. You know, when you're, I think there's a lot of pressure with the keyboard sometimes that you don't want to type it unless it's going to be kind of permanent. But when you're scribbling, you don't have that. And, or or I'll just write in longhand about the scene and about the problem that I'm Mm -hmm. having. Uh, That'll get me unstuck a lot of times. And um, I will physically cut up a scene, just cut up those pages and tape them, tape the elements together in a different order. Uh, that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. And then I have uh, two critique groups that I'm a part of, and there's usually one or the other of them meeting pretty soon uh, at any given time. So they're very helpful. And uh, there was one time years ago, my friend Mary and I were, it's when we were both writing for the magazines, and I had moved, she was uh 
we became friends when I lived in North Texas and, uh, but we stayed in touch and we were emailing about, gosh, this story I'm working on right now, I'm just kind of stuck. And well, so am I. And then uh, I said, do you want to switch? <laughs> Take, send me your story and you look at mine and we'll just, you know, see what happens. So we did. And uh, neither of us came up with anything very startling. It was just like, well, no, I think you're on the right track here. You just need to, you know, keep going and your your instincts are right. So I don't know, somehow the act of doing that just kind of unblocked both of us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. So now a few questions about the Truly Texas series. Which book in the series do you remember laughing the most while writing? Probably Coming Home to Texas because of the character of Tony, uh, because he is just a temperamental opposite from myself and <laughs> uh, just always saying and doing things that I would never say or do. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's such a, a soft hearted person, but of course, very physically strong and mentally tough, um, but just always saying random things. <laughs> <laughs> Which book from the series was the toughest to write? The Texan Secret Son was, was the toughest to write because of the deadline got moved up. Okay. Uh, that was when, yeah, Walmart, during the pandemic, of course, I'm sure you're aware that uh, sales of uplifting fiction just went up and mm -hmm. Walmart wanted a deal with uh, with Harlequin for especially Westerns. Yes. And yes. So <laughs> so uh, my editor asked, could we move up the deadline from the 1st of February to the 1st of November? Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. And it was late summer at the time. And I thought, well, you know, my kids are all grown and got a supportive husband. And yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so. <laughs> great Harlequin Western mystery because yeah. I picked up one of your uh, books at the Walmart, uh -huh. and I'm like, Sarah, it says Western on it. Yeah, and you were like, what is this Western? Yeah. The new series? This is a spinoff. Yeah, we were confused. Yeah, yeah thank you, but we got our answer. <laughs> um, and what has writing this series taught you about yourself as a writer? Well, I have learned that. I can write a lot faster than I used to think I could wow. <laughs> when there's, when there's a deadline and um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't take as much agonizing um, mm -hmm. and pondering as I used to think. Wow. Did that come with just the more that you had this, was it just having the series mapped out or each book it get, you seem to get a little bit faster. Like, where do you think that came from? Cause I always, I have like story ideas. I'm like really inspired because mm -hmm. Sarah's finally writing a book that's been on her mind for years. So I'm like, oh, oh I'm, I'm going to try to write something, but like yeah. I'm in that pondering stage. I'm just mm -hmm. thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I do think the pondering stage is, is very important. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, one reason I, that, that I'm a plotter is because I just think about it longer in the beginning before beginning the work. Mm -hmm. So rather than starting writing too soon and then making a lot of false starts. Uh, so definitely important. But then once, once you know where you're going and you run into a difficulty, because of course you don't have everything mapped out, you know, it's kind of tricky because sometimes you really do need to stop and think for a while until you find the solution and sometimes you just need to push through mm -hmm. and uh, it's just one of those things where experience gives you the wisdom to know which 
times are which. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did do you think writing the articles for the magazines, which were obviously shorter, but do you think that that contributed some of it? Because I mean, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Because I was trying to do about one a month or more. Oh, and one time, uh, an editor at the magazine contacted me and said, uh, asked me if I could do a story for an upcoming holiday. I think it was it was Labor Day or Memorial Day. And could I have it ready in two weeks? <laughs> and, you know, it's something where the heroine is just kind of kind of down and not much going on with her with her job and just everything's kind of blah and she had a bad breakup and you know and I thought well yeah I, th- I, I could do that and so it was two weeks that I had to write wow. like a about 7,000 word story and I just thought well I can do it for two weeks you know I can commit to you know pretty rigorous schedule for that long and I did it and it was a pretty good story. So yeah, that was very eye-opening too. Well, we're slowly transitioning into the autumn season here in our part of the world. And to celebrate our autumn autumnal episodes, we want to ask, are you a fan? And oh, if so, yeah. what kind of things do you do to celebrate the fall season? Oh, I am such a fan. <laughs> I, I love the fall, probably because uh, summers in Texas are pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it just gets hot. Uh, This has been a pretty mild summer for us. Uh, We have not had very many hundred plus days, but 90 some odd is still pretty hot and you get tired (laughs) after a while. The foliage is just worn out and the chickens are not laying well. You know, they're just tired. They just want some cool weather. (laughs) And (laughs) I always feel like if I can just make it to the first of September, that's not really fall, but it's pretty close. And things will start getting a little cooler. Mm-hmm. And and they are. It's been getting down to lows in the upper 60s, which mm-hmm. is just fantastic for here. And, um, and yet, like foliage gets so dried out and it turns kind of yellow. And I think it it's it's not because it's fall. It's just because it's drought stress. But, you know, I just kind of pretend, well, that's because it's yeah. fall. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just... I love to uh, change the, well, I've got the, this, um, I, what I would call a kneading trough, but I think people call them a, a dough bowl mm-hmm. um, for a centerpiece on, mm-hmm. on our uh, dining table. And, uh, you know, it has different filler that goes in it. And I change that out as the seasons oh. change. And so, yeah, that. it's going to be time to get the fall stuff in there. <laughs> the last few weeks of August up here were just, I'm in Toronto and it was just oh. disgusting. I mean, you'd step outside and hit a brick wall because of the humidity. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And I hated it. And then all of a sudden I woke up one morning, it's like someone flicked a switch uh-huh. and it was gone. And meanwhile, I'm dancing around in like my sweater, drinking pumpkin spice latte and my husband's just <laughs> grumbling because he hates it. He loves oh. it all <laughs> the winter. And I get what he's saying because the winters can be, of course, up here ridiculously long. Yeah. But there's just something about the fall that's just yeah. delightful, you know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> So let's do some round out questions. Okay. What is one book you wish you could read again for the first time? That would have to be The Lord of the Rings. Really? Oh, wow. That's oh, your yeah. first Lord of the Rings response. That is awesome. Really? Oh, yeah. I love it so much. Yeah. I've read it many, My many, many times. Favorite. Is it? Yeah. And uh, I've, The Silmarillion is just amazing. Just 
jaw-dropping. <laughs> so much of everything. Uh, it's it's just overwhelming. You just feel like, wow, this is so incredible and beautiful. And what is there left to write in the world? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's a romance novel you've read within the past few years that reminded you of why you love the genre? That would be A Holiday by Gaslight by Mamie Matthews. Wow. Oh, that's on my TBR. Okay. Yeah, I, I loved it. It was... Yeah, I, I read some others by her. I really loved her her Parish Orphan series. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this was a really, really beautiful novella. Who was your teenage celebrity crush? Well, I'm going to be really dating myself with this, but uh, it was Andy Gibb. <laughs> 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 the, the little brother of the Bee Gees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was cute. That's our first yeah. PG's response. Right? <laughs> I love it. I love I, it. <laughs> a couple of years ago, my husband and I actually went to see a Bee Gees cover band in New Braunfels. And, you know, I mean, this is this is not a popular. It was they were great. Disco. <laughs> I kind of like disco. I mean, yep. they were they were really talented musicians. They did some harmonically and melodically interesting stuff. Um, name one film you'll never stop watching. The Incredibles. I love it so much. Oh, that one's adorable. It is. It moves me to tears yep. every time. It's just got, it's got it all. Mm-hmm. What is one hill you will wholeheartedly die on? The hill I will die on is the truth is always the truth. It doesn't care how you feel about it or what society says about it. Uh, in a way, it's it's beyond defense, like it doesn't, it doesn't need to be defended because it just is. Um, truth never fails. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is one of your favorite romance tropes to read? Probably they're they're all so so fun when handled well. But uh, I think I really like Friends to Lovers. Yeah, that's that's I think Sarah and my favorite. Yes. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Especially like childhood friends to lovers. Yeah, yeah, there's something about that established relationship already. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tough love. What's been one of the toughest pieces of advice you've ever been given? Well, I had a history teacher in 10th grade who uh, kind of saw through me, I guess. I was always a very clever kid and uh, did well in school without trying very much. I was really just more concerned with my own projects than mm-hmm. like the books that I wanted to write and things I wanted to do uh, rather than really applying myself. I really, looking back, I could have done so much better in school if I just would have paid attention like everybody told me all the time. (laughs) But uh, she saw that I was really not working to capacity, that I could get good grades without trying very hard. But she told me that uh, I needed to get it in gear and stop spreading myself so thin, figure out what was important to me and focus on those things. And uh, she was right. And I (laughs) actually recognized it at the time, didn't necessarily apply it all right away. But yeah, it was good advice. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. I really like hearing that. 15 years from now, you're writing your memoir. What is the title? You know, it's probably going to be whatever something that the editor comes up with because I'm so bad at titles. <laughs> we can just name it "So Bad at Titles." Yeah, so, yeah that's see, that's 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 a great idea. 
Uh, knowing what you know now, what advice would you go back and tell yourself at the beginning of your writing career? I would tell myself to stop taking myself so seriously. Stop mm -hmm. trying to be startlingly original um, and mm -hmm. find a genre that I can work with that will be artistically satisfying and then do the necessary work to get in print. Uh, I read a lot of have you heard of Cal Newport, who wrote Deep Work? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, very, very interesting stuff. And then, um, uh, the, what's the other guy's name? It's Scott something. Well, there are these two productivity guys that, that mm -hmm. I you know, hear from a lot. And uh, one or the other, or both of them, have talked about the necessary work. And we all know what the necessary work is in doing a thing, but it's more fun to think about it or do research or study aspects of it that are more fun than the nuts and bolts of the thing we have to do to yeah. actually get there. And so I would, I would tell myself to, to do the necessary work, um, just tried and true tropes are there mm -hmm. for a reason. And audience expectations are there for a reason. And the Victorian era is gone. <laughs> <laughs> Dickens got paid by the word. And that is not us anymore. We have yeah. to yeah. accept <laughs> our society as it is. You have to grab our people's attentions fa fast. And, yeah. well, I'm the same way. You know, I'll look at a page and just, like, first paragraph, if it doesn't grab me on, I'm like, nope, don't have yeah. time. So, yeah, yeah accept the limitations. Uh, embrace them and do the necessary work. Can you share with us what is coming up next from you? Like, are we getting another Truly Texas book? Yes, there's a uh, book four is coming out in May. And I believe that one, I actually came up with the title that it that I believe they're going to use. And <laughs> <laughs> so that is Hill Country Promise. So this is a, a marriage pact story. Mm. This, is, <laughs> this is Eliana's story, the youngest Ramirez yeah, child. Yeah, she's kind of a spitfire. <laughs> yeah, she, right? Yeah. yeah. She makes things happen. Uh, and that character is very closely based on on my youngest daughter and some of her dating experiences. Uh, Eliana is more outgoing than my daughter and, you know, they're not just alike, but mm -hmm. a lot of the just experiences that the character has had with dating, even the, especially the really outrageous ones, just lifted straight from things that, that have happened to my daughter. So, and she knows that, and she's been very cooperative and supportive of the whole thing. And she beta reads for me. She's really fantastic. Um, so that's coming out in May. And I do hope to do more in the Truly Texas series. Uh, in um, recent, I guess in in uh, the Texan Secret Son, that Tony had and Alex have been doing more construction work mm -hmm. for the Masterson Acres, the old ranch that's been sold and carved up and subdivided, mm -hmm. uh, and houses are being built out there. So, of course, that's a thing that happens in rural communities all the time, and it's happening happening in my community. And people don't always like that. So, some of the old ranching families don't like seeing that old family land broken up. They don't want these newcomers in here and uh, so a lot of opportunities for for tension and for sparks to fly there so I'm looking forward to doing some of that uh, I 
have also got one of my historicals that I wrote years ago. I'm hoping for uh, for something to happen with that soon. That's oh, wow. uh, a, yeah. So too what, soon to know yet. Like what time <laughs> period is the historical? It's uh, American Revolution. Wow. Set, set in North Carolina, where there was a, a huge Scottish community. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. A lot of a lot of Highlanders and a lot of Ulster Scots who are not the same as each other. So, mm-hmm. yeah, very interesting stuff. Well, we need great. that, okay? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and lastly, where can everyone follow you online? Uh, I am on Facebook as Kit Hawthorne Author, and I am on Instagram as at Kit Hawthorne. Uh, my website is kithawthorne.com. All righty. Well, we will have all of that listed down in the show notes. It has been such an honor to chat with yes. you today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I enjoyed yes. this so much. We've been <laughs> counting down the days. Yes. <laughs> well, so have I. <laughs> so, well, listeners, make sure that you check the show notes. We will have all the places that you can follow and keep up with Kit Hawthorne online, as well as where you can find her books. Go read the Truly Texas series. It is amazing. You have plenty of time <laughs> until the next book releases. Yes. So. <laughs> get your hands on the track list we love it so much and Sarah and I will chat with you all in our next episode have a lovely day everybody bye